reading from Hebrews chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when he took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Okay, everyone. Um, So this is Hebrews 8. And we are journeying through uh, Hebrews at a pretty high clip where we were pretty slow at the beginning, but now we are just, we're whipping. And so we're taking large chunks at a time. And so as the same as last week, this week, we will, uh, we will continue to try to, to grab an entire chapter and give us some semblance of, of rhythm and, and uh, it should be good. If you've been with us from the beginning, you know that Jesus, the theme has been that Jesus is better. Uh, All throughout Hebrews, um, the Hebrew church, it was a small church about our size. It was in... On, uh, in Italy, maybe around Rome, somewhere like this. But um, the, the church, the little church at Rome, they were tempted to fall away, to actually retreat backwards and go toward a system that they had once believed in. And the, the Hebrew writer here is really screaming at them, do not fall away. Do not revert backwards towards some old system that makes very little sense. And so with great rhetorical arguments, he's setting up these things, all right, these structures, these, these places of religious comforts, and he begins to tear them down over and over and over again. 
We begin with, I mean, just the, the, the ultimate of all ultimates in Hebrews 1. We see that creation is beautiful and it is orderly and it's amazing. And we see that Jesus comes in and he's actually better than creation. He then goes into uh, the celestial beings. He talks about angels and how glorious and dazzling and majestic they are. And then says that Jesus is better than even the angels. He goes on to Moses and then on. I mean, just continues on and on and on uh, to, to set these things up and tears them down. Now today, um, we're going to talk about a, a term that most of us may not be familiar with or even comfortable with. It's the word covenant. All right, covenant is an old word, all right? And so we're talking about both the old covenant and the new covenant, all right? So just as for groundwork goes, that's where we're heading this morning. Now, no one asked me, right? No one asked me, no expert ever actually called the office and asked, but if they were to ask, I would say that the one word that has framed Western society in the last five years would be the word smart, Okay, think about that word smart and how it's framed everything. Um, everything is smart these days. I mean, it is passe, it is old news to say that you have a smart phone, right? Because everyone has a smart phone, unless you're my father. He still has the flip phone. It's amazing. I, I love to watch him answer that thing. But this word smart has just permeated all of our lifestyles. We have smart thermostats. Right? I don't know how it works, right? but they're smart. We have smart security systems. I don't know how they work, but it's amazing. We've got smart light bulbs. right? I've got a brother-in-law who stands at Lowe's and just looks at all of these smart light bulbs and just, just drools because he wants his entire house to, to go between hues of different temperature and, and all of this brightness and stuff. I don't get it, but that is where we're heading is this word smart. Right? The newer, the shinier, the, the, the newest stuff that we want is actually tied to this word smart. And the word smart is actually tied to this thing called artificial intelligence, also known as AI. You may not know what artificial intelligence is, right? But there's a ton of science behind this stuff that's really amazing. If you have a phone and you say, hey, Google, or you say, hey, Siri, the stuff that's coming back at you, that is artificial intelligence. And it is just, I mean, it is it's taking the world by storm. I mean, artificial intelligence, says um, Kevin Kelly, who is the founder of Wired Magazine. I mean, really just brainiac smart. And he's just, he knows the forerunner. And he says, the next 100,000 jobs that should be created should be cr job creation toward artificial intelligence. We want our stuff shiny and new and amazing, but we also want it smart. So much so that the Georgia legislator right now is looking at finding $2 billion somewhere to build a brand new smart road to run from Atlanta all the way to Macon, right? I don't know where they're going to find this, this money, but the legislator really, really wants this road. And the road is for trucks only, right? Get the trucks off the road, especially out of metro Atlanta, and run them on this one corridor from, from Atlanta to Macon. But here's the hitch. Sure, it's going to take a lot of money, and yes, it's going to uh, relieve a lot of traffic in downtown Atlanta, those kinds of things. But they want this to be the very first smart highway, where they're actually going to test out big rigs, big 18-wheelers, these, these guys to actually have self-driving cars or self-driving trucks. Can you imagine? This is a strange new world. Everything's getting smarter. And so in the 60s, we were trying to get to the moon. Now everyone is trying to get a smart car, a smart self-driving car. That's where we're going. 
And so this new wave, this new frontier of business, this new frontier of newness is all going after something. And some of you may not be techies, I'm certainly not, but some of you may get really excited about this kind of news. Like, yes, this is new and this is amazing and this is great. And you can actually forecast just a little bit. I wonder what it's going to look like in 10, 15, or 50 years from now. Well, that's what the Hebrew author is trying to do. He's trying to forecast just a little bit because they were looking back at my father's flip phone and go, isn't this amazing? And everybody in society, especially this Hebrew writer, coming from a religious context was like, no, it's not. There's something newer out there. There's something more amazing out there that you need to understand. You actually need to set your gaze on the new, not to revert back to the old. Look at verse 5 for a second. Now, this is where we're actually going to start today. That, that these things, right, in verse 5 says, these things serve as a copy and shadow of the things, of, of, of the law. This copy or the shadow, he's basically t- calling a timeout and say, those are old replicas. Those things are old and outdated and you really need to look toward something else. So whatever this copy or this shadow is, this old covenant that they were reverting back to, he was giving them a warning and saying, yes, you may revert back to them, but it's literally as worthwhile as chasing or grabbing or being able to to box up a shadow. Because we all know what shadows are. Shadows are simply just um, an outline of a real thing. Like we can do we could do like sock puppets or whatever, like shadow puppets, not sock puppets. We can do shadow puppets somewhere. I don't know where the light would be, right? And it's like, oh, look, he can make a bird or a butterfly. You know, we could do that and be really amazed, but you can't have a shadow without somebody actually doing it. Does that make sense? And so this copy or this shadow, sure, it had significance. And sure, it was very, very important, but it was actually pointing someplace. I can't stop, I can't move on past these two words in verse 5, this, this copy and the shadow without doing a little bit of teaching on just how we read our Old Testament. Because we need to read our understand, uh, Old Testament and we need to know how. Uh, the one major flaw for us as we kind of open and we crack this Old Testament, which makes up more than two-thirds of our Bible. I mean, there's a lot of words there. Our first fundamental flaw is that it was for someone else. That the Old Testament was for a, a, a yesteryear and a yester people. As if that it has no significance over our lives at all. And that's not fair. That's not fair to the Old Testament and all of its, its rhythm. So for one, the major flaw is that we have been dismissive of the Old Testament. And we've run too quickly to the Gospels and the Epistles and said, this is where the real meat is. Well, let me let you know that when Jesus was a little boy in middle school and in high school and when he was in his 20s and 30s, he was having a quiet time, right? He was reading and meditating on God's law, right? And he, was not, he did not hold an English standard version. What was, how was he reading his Bible? And what Bible was he reading? <laughs> he was reading out of the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament was his Bible, and it did him great. I mean, great value. And it sustained him. He was able to fight with the Old Testament. He was able to, to have logic with the Old Testament and on and on. So if we were too dismissive of the Old Testament, we need to have some kind of counteractive. The second thing is that we don't know the actual mores of the Old Testament. 
we think we look at the people of Daniel and we look at David and we think that these are just good characters in which to point us to some kind of moral example. We're like, man, wouldn't it be great to be like Samson and have biceps like that, right, McKibben? I mean, like, you know, like, look at that, right? I want to rip down something amazing. Like, I want to be like Samson. Not anything to do with what Samson's role in redemptive history, but you just want his muscles. And that's kind of how the Old Testament has been slanted as we read them and we look at these examples and we want to be like Ruth who is honoring his, her mother-in-law which is true but the Old Testament is actually heading someplace is actually if we can use kind of a pregnant term it's actually pregnant and it's, it's actually on its way someplace right it's crowded with something and it's advancing someplace because the Old Testament was this thing about fulfillment or establishing something that would come in advance the Old Testament was going someplace and was pointing toward the person and work of Jesus. All of the Old Testament, this copy and the shadow, was actually forecasting a long way toward looking at the person and work of Jesus himself. On the road to Emmaus, right after Jesus was crucified, he was walking on a road, there were two guys, and he joined them, so now there were three. He was shrouded and he, he did not disclose who he was. And so they were just walking and talking and having a good old time. And they started talking about the Bible. And Jesus, being Jesus, the resurrected one, he, they st he started to teach them. And started to I mean, just wow them. Well, at the very end of, of uh, Luke's gospel, it tells us that at the end of their session, Jesus paused and said, all of these things, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, all of these things are about me are about the Christ and so if you crack open your Old Testament and I want you to because we need to read them you cannot read the pages of the Old Testament all by themselves without understanding that they are all pointing toward Jesus on purpose as one very famous pastor put it um, he put it this way Whoa, I'm really flying today without any notes he put it this way think of this he says this. He says, um, okay, I can't find it. He says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who fought in another garden. And he says that Jesus is the true and better Abel who though innocent was slain and his blood cries out for our forgiveness. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God, leaving the comfortable and familiar and going into a void. And so as important as Adam was, he was still pointing toward Jesus, who would come into a different garden. And as important as Abel or Abraham was, so much so that Jesus was the true and better Isaac, right? Who was offered up by his father on the mountain, uh, but was uh, uh, but uh, said um, but was offered up sacrificially, and so God tells Abraham. He says, "Now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love for me." Jesus is a true and better Isaac because now we can say, "Now I know how much you love us because you did not withhold your son from us." And on and on and on it goes. All of these structures and all of these things point toward Jesus. And so we look at the Old Testament 
and we look at the old covenant, it's exactly the same thing. They're pointing toward something amazing. It's something that's going to be fulfilled in Jesus. All right, so covenant. All right, what is this, this covenant word? Again, it's a very old, old word. It, it's basically a binding, um, binding kind of legal document between two parties. All right, so that's what a covenant is. Well, all throughout the Old Testament, we start seeing this, this idea or this concept of covenant starting to like shape the narrative of the entire Old Testament. Because we see that the people who are in a relationship with God, God is actually making a formal agreement with him. So God is leaving heaven and actually coming into and binding himself to his people. That's what covenant is. So you look in Genesis 3.15. This is our first. I mean, this is three chapters into the Old Testament. Three, uh, three chapters and we're starting to sense or get a hint that God was up to something. Genesis 3.15 says that he would send a son that was born of a woman who would crush the head of Satan. All right. If, that's, if that sounds like someone, you let me know. Because that is Jesus who was a son who was born of a woman who would literally crush the head of Satan. And we're starting to get these glimpses that God was up to something. We then look at Genesis 12, you know, just a few more chapters, Genesis 17, and there was one character. His name was Abraham. Abraham, all right, is called out of his land and, and moved to another land, to a foreign land. God comes to Abraham and says, you, son, you, Abram, you are going to bless you're going to have a family and you're going to bless the families of this entire world. And it really is a remarkable change of events that God is going to bless the entire world through one man. And that's called the Abrahamic covenant where, where God is actually coming to bless the world through one man. We then go to 2 Samuel 7 in which we look at David and we see that God again comes to this very famous person. His name was David. And he comes to him and he says, not just through the nations of, of Israel, not just through the Jewish people, but through you, David. Like you are going to father the Messiah. There is going to be one that will come and redeem all of this. And David, you're going to be it. Just carry on a couple of hundred years. And you see in Jeremiah 31 and then also in Ezekiel 36, you see this, this brand new language. Not language of yesteryear, not Abraham and Isaac and Daniel, but you start to see a turn in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. You see this word new. There will be a new covenant that will be born. And this new covenant, right, will be something that you have never seen. And then in Revelation 21, the very end of our book, you see Jesus actually call up this, this language once again, that God will be our, and he is our God, and he will be for us, and he will fight for us. And so what is going on here with this, uh, this, this new covenant? Verse 5, we've already read. Verse 6, uh, we'll keep on going. Uh, I'll just go ahead and start from 5 and just move on so that the, the logic will carry on. So these things, they serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So you remember uh, 
Moses. Oh, I even I missed Moses. You forgot there was a, a covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai. Sorry, I missed the most obvious one. Uh, sorry, forgive me there. So you have Abram, Abraham. You've got uh, the Sinai, or you've got Moses's covenant and David's, and then the New Covenant. I missed that one. Sorry about that. But then you have Moses on top of the mountain. And what God is telling him is, I'm going to show you something. There's going to be a pattern, and I want you to write it down. I want you actually to follow this to the T. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. That's an interesting phrase. That God would put forth an old testament or an old covenant, but that Christ would come and he, it would be much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better. There is a new covenant, and it is better than the old one, since it is enacted on better promises. So it's not just more excellent, but now it is better. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for the second. All right, Bible people out there, you go ahead and look at verse 7 and tell me that there's not a problem. I mean, this is audacious stuff here. I mean, this is really, really strong language. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for, to look for a second. And so what the author is saying here is that there was something that was faulty in the first covenant. How could God actually come to us with a faulty covenant? Well, if you look at faulty uh, as if something was wrong, right? That, that, would be, that would be too strong. But faulty as in if it was incomplete, then you're starting to see where it's really about to happen. Because then everything is moving in one line. So the Old Testament, it was not that there was something that was wrong with it, but that it was limited. Or not that just that it was limited, but that it was incomplete. Because over and over and over in the Old Covenant, you had year after year, priest after priest, walking into a temple and killing uh, goats and sheep for the sins of the people. And so the sin after sin, covenant, uh, breaking covenant, sacrifice after sac sacrifice, you see that the Old Covenant was perpetual it continued to move forward with the people and it never had an ending there was never a time in which the old covenant was finished and so when we hear Jesus on the cross screaming out it is finished now we understand this word faultless just a little bit more that sure there was not something wrong with it but that it had no finality to it and that's what Jesus is able to bring to us he's able to bring to us a finality because there is no more temple there is no more sacrifices because Jesus is better and he comes with a better covenant and he comes with better promises amen that's what he does and this new covenant is set forth in a way that it is finished because you and I were not traveling we're not booking tickets to Jerusalem we've never seen a temple and we've never bought a sheep or a goat and we certainly haven't given it to a priest for our sin offering that is over with because what Jesus has done has brought all of that system to finality it is truly finished and so there's three things that are going on in this covenant that is better. Number one, and we'll keep going, we'll just read. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, uh, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. 
when the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with the fathers. This is totally brand new, he says in verse, uh, verse 9. The, the, the one that I made with your fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and I brought them or I bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. That, that season is over. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Let's pause right there in verse, the first part of, of verse 10. I will, all right, that, the, the old is gone for I will, for, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, that after those days, declared the Lord, I will put their laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. This is very, very different words because we know what happened with Moses. We know what happened when he goes up to Mount Sinai, right? We hear and we see God with his finger, write the law of God with his own hand and give them real uh, tablets of stone and say, you need to follow this. There is a real law and a real piece of stone and you are to follow this. It was very external. This new covenant is a continuation and it's a completion. So it doesn't, it's not completely new, it's, but it's, it's enough of a facet that this law is going to remain, but it's going to transfer out of tablets of stone and into our hearts. It'll actually be internal and it'll live inside of us. This is what Jesus promises to us when he says you will have the Holy Spirit and he will dwell in us, right? You will have the mind of Christ and the mind of Christ will dwell in us. So we will not need a law to be posted on walls anymore because we have the law that is implanted in our own heart. And so in the deep south, we ask Jesus to come into our hearts. And so this is kind of where this language comes from. It's because we are inviting the law of God not to be placed on a placard, but truly live and breathe in us. The Old Testament was all about memorization. But the memorization had to do with outward expressions. Declare them, says the Lord. Put them on your doorpost and put them on your gates and put them on the frontlets in front of your eyes write these things down so you would always have them at your disposal Jesus says I in the new covenant I've got one better I will actually implant them and I will change your heart Ezekiel says it this way that he will change your heart of stone and actually give you a heart of flesh meaning that it will be susceptible to understand God's law and you will be able to be walking and breathing and carrying around with you all day long it's new and it's fresh and it's smart and it's good and it's incomplete because we truly have the spirit of God living inside of us and it's remarkably wonderful not only that, but I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their, or in their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is the end of verse 10. This is old language picked up in Exodus 7 and carried on over and over and over that God will, I will be your God and you shall be my people. But there is no, everything is secure at this moment. The new covenant will bring finality to that that statement. Because of what Jesus has done, the audacity is that God would actually bring people to himself. You will be my people. I have chosen you. I don't know what your week looked like. 
or your month or your season look like. But for you to have a holy God to actually say, you're my people. I actually, actually, I'm choosing, I'm actually going after and I want you to come close to me. And all my holiness and all my wonderful, actually this, this is less about holiness in this passage and more about grace. To actually bring him, you close to us, which is unfathomable to the old covenant. That I would be your God and you would be my people. That's even stronger language is that you and I now are representatives of God himself. You and I are truly the spokesmen of God himself. If God was going to put out some kind of marketing campaign, right? If he was going to brand and do some kind of advertisement and do some kind of commercials, guess who would be his spokesman? You and me. We're the ones that he would pick. He wants you and I to tell his grand story because the law of God and the spirit of God is living inside of us and it gets better and better and better. And you shall not have to teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least into the greatest. And that's why we love the idea of implanting tr the truths of God inside of our, our little ones because we, we love the idea that from the least to the greatest, they all have this invitation to know Jesus. In verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This is something that the Old Testament and the Old Covenant could not offer is that there would be a finality to our sins. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. God does not, actually, let's put it this way. God has an amazing memory. From all eternity past to all eternity future, he knows every molecule and Colossians 1 says that he holds all things together in Christ Jesus. I mean, there's, there's not one square inch that is, that is inescapable of his memory and his presence and his goodness. And yet there is one way in which he is forgetful on purpose. And it has to do with your and my sin how we have sinned against Jesus. We've sinned against God. And the new covenant says that he is gonna come in and offer something he's never offered anyone anywhere else. I will be forgetful. I will remember their sins no more. I will scatter your, skin, your sins, the Old Testament was said, from as far as from the east is from the west. For there is now no condemnation who, who is in Christ Jesus. I mean, there is no remembrance whatsoever for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we beg of you to consider Jesus. We beg of you to consider a covenant that is so new and so fresh that it literally eliminates all of your sins eliminates them and it's literally he shows a blind eye and the way that he is able to show a blind eye toward your sin is because all of his wrath was enacted on Jesus himself he poured out all of his disdain and all of his wrath and all of his anger toward your sin and mine on Jesus and Jesus says it is finished 
And at the end of the story, Jesus says in in Revelation, behold, I am making all things new. That is the promise of the new covenant. The stains and the rank and the smell and the look of the old is gone. And behold, I am making all things new. This is not just a smartphone from a flip phone. This is a brand new creature for you have been made new. The old is gone and the new has come. Put off the old self and put on this new self over and over and over. In the same way that I can't see that back wall because of these black curtains. is the same way that God is now looking at us. Because he can't see the back, cur- or back wall without seeing the curtain first. The veil was torn and all things were opened up to us. And yet there's something, there's a cataract on God's eyes in a good way. Because he cannot see us. He can't view us without first looking at Jesus first. And that's why we are in Christ We are held in him. God can't see us without first seeing Jesus and what Jesus is able to do. In verse six, it tells us that Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant. This mediator is truly like um, this this go-between. Right? who perfectly has to represent both parties. He can't, he can't be partial one way or the other. And Jesus is perfect and our perfect mediator because he can literally stand in the middle because he was fully God and fully human. He could fully be holy and perfect like God is and yet understand the limitations of man. And he's literally the go-between, literally the mediator between us. The new covenant is not just an antiquated term made a little bit different. It is totally new. It is brand new. And it promises us something that you and I cannot do for ourselves. The removal of sin from God's eyes, from his vantage point. That's why we're heading to Easter. That's where we're going because Easter morning changes everything. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you're calling people to yourself. Right now, there's a chance that there are some that are trusting in an old way of life. I pray that this day March 18th will be a day in which someone will claim as a day that they transferred their weight or transferred their vision away from an old structure to you because you bring a new covenant and you bring the freshness of the Holy Spirit who breathes on us help and counsel. You then make us very smart by giving us the mind of Christ. And truly, you will give us an eternal dwelling in the new heavens and the new earth. If you're in here this morning and you are trusting in an old picture, we would encourage you to follow Jesus.
to follow after a new way of life where all of your sins are truly removed. I will remember your iniquities no more. That is amazing. That is the good news of Jesus Christ, that he will remember our sins no more. Jesus, as we walk toward this table, we recognize that the symbolism is powerful because we know that in this table, that this is where that was possible, where the removal of sin is truly possible is through your death and sacrifice for us. It's in your name we pray, amen. Each week at Redstone, we, we come to the table because we say the only way that iniquity and sin can be taken care of is through, through this table, through the symbolism of J- Jesus' death uh, on the cross for our sins. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a piece of bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body given for you. He then takes um, a chalice of wine that he's going to share with his disciples And he says, this is the blood spilled for you, poured out for you for the the forgiveness of sins. But what does he use here as he's passing around uh, the wine? He says, this is my blood of a new covenant. This is the beginning of the new thing. And that's why we come to this table. Every single week we come afresh anew and say, this is where it began. The new covenant began with Jesus telling us that his body would be broken and his blood spilled on our behalf. Um, We have men that will be, and we've got three in the back and one up here in the corner. And so we've got plenty of stations for you. We would encourage you, if, if you are placing your trust in Jesus this morning, for you to come and praise God that your sins are forgotten, are truly forgiven and forgotten. So go ahead and stand. Um, Will's going to be playing some music. And so take your time. Um, feel no rush or hurry to, to run to the stations because these things will be open uh, for a while. So take at your leisure, but know that they are open. Um, so take whenever you feel free.